Welcome to the Work Life Brilliance Podcast with executive coach and best-selling author, Denise Renee Green. Denise fills each episode with humor, compassion, knowledge, and pragmatism to help you transform your life. Listen in and learn how you can tame your brain, lower your stress, and become the person you were born to be. All right. I am very excited for this special episode. Uh, And this is the first time we're actually meeting sort of in person and I get to hear your voice because that's exciting because you have such a powerful voice that comes through in your writing. And um, now I get to actually hear it and our listeners get to hear it. So I'm excited that you're here. I am interviewing, of course, as I said in the intro, the powerful force of love and positive change known as Aaron Gallagher. And let me just read a little bit of a bio so I don't miss the big points and make things up. But Aaron is the CEO and founder of several companies, but Ella, which is an inclusive network unlocking women's access to human and financial capital. She has more than 20 years experience leading global marketing, communications, media relations, branding, DEI, for those who haven't been around in the last 10 years, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and organizational change. Her writing's been featured everywhere, uh, Fortune, Fast Company, Forbes, New York Times, and she's counseled the White House, which she might tell us a little bit about, and also uh, C-suite executives in some of the world's biggest brands and companies. And like I said, her voice is, her message is pure power, and her LinkedIn posts go viral about every 10 days. And she pisses a lot of people off. (laughs) That's for sure. That's for sure. And one of your posts just in the last few months was named top 100 post in the decade. So we're going to find out what the hell you're up to and why, why that you get this reaction. And um, clearly there's an appetite for it right now. So thank you, Erin, for being on the show and welcome. Denise, I'm so, so thrilled to be here, honored, grateful for the space that you're creating and cannot wait for what our discussion will bring about. All right. So I did not mention your official bio, um, your your short line bio on your um, description of yourself, but it includes two phrases that our listeners might not be familiar with. So, and I just remember the first time I saw you you were wearing a shirt that said pro row. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, this woman's interesting. <laughs> and it was right as the shit was going down in the Supreme Court. Yep. And so your your bio includes all the normal words, mm-hmm. author, speaker. Um, but it also includes the phrase abortion beneficiary, which yeah. I had never heard until then, and mm-hmm. intersectional feminist. So can you start us off by just you, you just decide which one you want to start with, and let's talk Absolutely. about what those are. Absolutely. So, and I wore my pro row shirt when I went to the White House a few weeks ago. So, yeah, we'll talk about that. And was with the CEO and um, president of Planned Parenthood um, three weeks before the Supreme Court overturned Roe. So, I am very passionate about this and doing the work that I can to have impact in this space. So let's talk about abortion beneficiary first, since that's kind of what I just spoke to. Whether you are a person who is pro-choice or a person who is anti-choice, a person who has had an abortion or not, 
a person who knows someone who has had an abortion or doesn't, or a person who thinks they don't know anyone but does, you are an abortion beneficiary. And what I mean by that is every single one of us, because of the statistics, it is, you cannot refute it. On the low end, one in four women will have an abortion over the course of her life. You know someone. You are someone or you think you don't know someone, but you do. So when you go about your day, let me just give a very bland sort of example. You drop your kids off at school. One of those teachers has had an abortion and they are teaching your children and they are doing you a service of caregiving so that you can do other things in your life. You go and you get a cup of coffee. One of the baristas has had an abortion. You make a call to your financial planner to think about retirement. One of those people, one of those women has had an abortion. And so whether or not you think you benefit from it, you do. This is how the world goes around. This is a, it's healthcare and it is an economic um, amplifier and facilitator. So it, it's a whole discussion we can have, but that is, that's the definition. It is, it's a, it's a phrase that I coined and that I talk about because I want to get really clear about the fact that this is not political and it's not about morals and it's not about religion. It's about healthcare and everyone benefits from abortion. Okay. So intersectional feminist is the only type of feminism that matters and exists. There was a quote from Gloria Steinem recently where she said, white feminism is not feminism because feminism by definition is intersectional. And so we have seen, unfortunately, over the past 40, 50, 60 years, a lot of feminist movements that did not bring along women of color and in particular black women. And so for me, it is deeply important that when we talk about feminism and we talk about doing the work of making sure that gender equity is aspirationally what we're headed towards, that we are talking about all of the intersections that make up the diversity of who a woman is, age, gender, race, um, you know, whether or not the person has chosen to be a mother. So we need to be thinking about all of those. And, and if feminism is not intersectional, if gender equity is not intersectional, then it is neither of the above. We're only like three minutes in and I have goosebumps and kind of tears, like I'm holding back. Um, Don't hold back. Don't hold no, back. And, I, and I'm so glad you brought up, I'm like, you can hear my voice. Um, yeah, see? Yes. I'm so glad you brought up the Gloria Steinem quote because the elephant in the room is that we are two effing white women That's right. talking about this. That's right. And um, I just want to talk about that a little bit because I know my clients know that I am hella sincere. And yeah. I know that your people know that you are hella sincere. But of course, we don't get it. We cannot. We can be the most empathetic people in the world. And I am. Like, I'm like, it's an accident of nature that, I, that I'm this. It's, I didn't plan this. I didn't plan this color. And frankly, I don't even understand why this is superior. Like this, this is a dumb color because the sun is burning us all the time. Like, so I think our, my clients get that. But at the same time, I feel a little weird. And of course, I talk to people of every race and color on this, on the show. But what do you think white men's, women's responsibility is? And um, how can we not fuck it up and mm. take over? you know, the conversation too much. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm looking at my, um, my bookshelf here. I have almost an entire shelf dedicated just to the 
deconditioning the unlearning of white, what it is to be a white woman, feminism, all of those things. Um, there's, you know, a, a beautiful book by Syra Rao called um, White Women. And it's about this, right? It's about this reality that the most, the, the, the people that hold the most power in the world next to straight white men are straight white women. And what is so dangerous about straight white women is that they get to sit into two, they get to sit in two places. They sit in the room of a workplace with just the men, and they are the only woman often on a leadership team. So they are the representative of women in that room. They're the one and the only. And then they also get to sit in a room of women and more often than not be the most senior, the person with the most power and influence. And so rule that space as well. So there is a danger to someone that has that kind of power, right? A man can't sit in that room with all those women. And so, so white women have a special kind of power that in the wrong hands is the number one reason that we have not achieved intersectional gender equity. And it's the number one reason that, that we still struggle with all of the things that we do when we think about women. So I'm really clear about this um, when I'm either having conversations, I'm on a podcast, I'm doing an interview or I'm speaking somewhere or in my writing. I'm really clear about two things. One is I acknowledge the privilege that I have as a straight white woman, cisgendered woman. And as you just said, I didn't deserve this. Um, I'm, I'm not treated like I don't have more privilege because I deserve it or because I did anything to earn it. It is because we live in a white supremacist society that has decided that this archetype is superior. Okay. So it's, you have to acknowledge that when you have conversations about things and also recognize that we are never going to have the true lived experience of those who are the most historically excluded black women. So what we need to be doing as we're solving any of the challenges or problems that we have in the world is Black women need to be at the center of those conversations because if we can solve for their experience, all of us will benefit. And if we don't solve for their experience, they will continue to be left out. And so, so I feel, you know, why I say what I say on LinkedIn, why I talk about what I talk about, why I am disruptive in spaces that are not comfortable with it is because I feel a deep responsibility to use that privilege because I can say things that other people can't say just because I'm a straight white woman. And so I better be having really tough conversations and pushing things and also saying things that, that other people shouldn't have to continue to say about themselves. So that's one piece. And then the other piece that I think is important is, and I say this as well, some of the most toxic women in my professional experience have been white women. They have been the most toxic to me. And I am, you know, by definition, the most like them. So the experience of anyone who's different has been worse. And so it's time for white women to get their shit together. And it's time for them to stop seeing other women as threats and to stop honestly being foot soldiers for the patriarchy, which is what many of them have been and continue to be. So, you know, I am not a person that says all women like this. Everyone's all women. It's like, we're, we're, we're all doing great things and I'm supporting all of them. No, 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 no. If you are not a woman who supports other women, 
then we have a problem. And there is, and it's about you, but we, you're not coming along with us in what we are hoping to do. I believe that one of the reasons why you get such resistance from white women could be, um, you are you unique in my experience um, of not having something I call FOPO. We all have fears. We all have brains that have negativity bias. We all have brains that are in survival mode. And I, FOPO is what I use to coin fear of pissing someone off. Mm. You don't have that, at, for at least from what I, it's like, <laughs> if you have it, it's like, I don't know who, maybe it's your, no. your son's teacher. I don't know. But like, no. maybe you have fears. I know you have fears yeah. because we all do. Um, but that does not seem to be one of them. And women have gotten to where they are by avoiding pissing off the wrong people. Yes. And you come out and you're, they might be thinking, threatening, like, don't fuck this up for us women because mm -hmm. we've been playing it safe for so effing long. Yes. And now you come out as a disruptor and you make us look bad. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm thinking. Absolutely. So, so clearly your passion is bigger than your fear in this. Uh, like you're like, like <laughs> much bigger. But how long have you been disruptive like this for the sake of, you know, helping others and not really cared about what people thought. Yeah, it's, it's been a journey. It's been a journey. Um, and you know, I, so I have always been disruptive. Like since I was a little girl, I, I have been the person who constantly says, but okay, but why do we do it that way? Right. And so like, that was very annoying to systems that were like, Hey, it's because we've always done it this way. And that's how we're going to do it because we don't want to figure out how to do it differently. That's going to be hard. It's going to require change. Like it's going to be uncomfortable. So I was always asking why, like, why is that the way that it is? So to the degree that I had any sort of power or influence, like obviously that ebbed and flowed over time as I, as I got older, but I think what happened when I was inside of corporate America and I was um, asking those questions and being disruptive. I was doing it like still in a more curated way that was going to be a little more accepting. It was watered down a bit. It was, um, it was palatable for corporate and still the response that I got from so many women, white women who were, you know, senior to me, like the the hallway conversation after I was asking those harder questions, I was I stopped someone from doing something and I said that's not acceptable, whatever it looked like. The the hallway conversations were always you don't have to you don't have to fight about everything. You don't have to you didn't have to ask that that way. That's not what he meant. That's you're too sensitive, right? And so like it was just this real constant gaslighting that was meant to make me mistrust myself because the message was your intuition is wrong. Your experience is not real. Your feelings are invalid. And so I let people tell me what I was thinking and what I was experiencing and who I was for a really long time. And even in the first company that I founded, um, you know, some of that was still at play. So truly the very first time that I was able to come out as, as the version of myself that is filterless 
and is saying the things that I think need to be said is about a year ago when I exited that first company and took a career break for four months and then started on the journey of creating my own company where I answered to myself. So I also recognize the the privilege that I have in that situation. And I also feel deep responsibility because of that. I get messages all the time on LinkedIn from women that say, the post that you did today, I've never felt more seen in my life. This is exactly what's happening to me. I really wanted to be able to like it, but I'm too afraid because I don't want my boss to see that I'm, I have made a comment on your post or I can't, I want to follow you, but I can't because I don't want them to know. So there's just this, there's so much control that's happening. That's unseen that women are experiencing and it's trauma bonding and it's all kinds of things, these toxic work environments. And so I feel deep responsibility to be the person who is saying those things. I mean, that's, that's really the crux of it is um, like, you know, it's, it's so funny, like your acronym. I love that. Yeah. I, I used to be afraid of pissing people off because I was a people pleaser. Now I accept that I piss people off. It I is not imagine you as a people pleaser. Like <laughs> what universe was that in? What? <laughs> so, so here, here's what it was. It was a universe before I was 40. And I, I really did abandon myself in service to others, even though I was very strong willed and a feminist and like stood up for what I thought was right. I still allowed people to tell me who I was. My I mean, bosses and and other you know uh, other people in my life, I I abandoned myself and um, shape shifted to sort of fit what was needed. And so that is when I turned forty, that stopped. It was twenty years of therapy, honestly, leading me to that moment and just having like a really really important milestone birthday that that had me look around and and kind of interrogate my life. And what I wanted to continue to do and be. And like we talked about LinkedIn, I mean, here's what happened. I went from like 2,500 followers on LinkedIn to, you know, 50,000 during this time where I have just finally started to say what I think needs to be said. There is so much to be, there is so much to talk about. Um, Do you have like eight hours? Um, Because I I want to talk about. I have three until I have to pick up my seven-year-old, but yes, we can do that. Um, so I want to talk about how you help people, um, but but I want to ex- expand upon what you just said because you were you know the the nail that was hammered down when you were uh, a white woman in the room and you were debating and uh, arguing and whatever it was, be asserting whatever. How dare you? Um, black women don't even have the luxury of anger; they can't. Yeah. And well, they can, but we all know what happens, right? Mm-hmm. So I just want to put that out there that we understand this and all women are playing this, you know, this calibration between strength and warmth and how not to dial up the strength too high so that you feel threatened. And so your biased brain goes, "Mm, she's a bitch. You don't ever actually say those words, but you know, your brain is thinking those words. So anybody listening to this, um, that can be fixed. We can help you calibrate this so that you do show up influential and then you have an outlet for the anger. We, we find an outlet for the anger because the anger has got to go somewhere. Um, usually we take it home to our kids. We take it home to the, the partner, whatever it is. Um, so I just want to say that. So, and that is how I help people is help them find that calibration 
upgrade the beliefs. Women have been taught the wrong things growing up in order to like try and keep us safe, find a good man. You know, all those things our parents intent had were well-meaning about most people's parents, but black women got it tenfold because their parents had serious concerns about them, valid concerns about them. So they were taught to be this big Mm -hmm. or to pretend to be somebody else. So it's not to threaten. And then that's why they burn out because they are pretending. They are, like you said, people pleasing. They are taking on everything, thinking that someday, if I just keep saying yes, and if I just keep playing small, they'll see how brilliant I am. And that's not how it works. Okay. So that's a bit about how I help people, but let's talk about how you help people. There's so many different ways we can, so we, we can talk about the fairway dinners. We can talk about the white house. I think people are probably interested in that. Um, but you tell me, what do you want to talk about? How do you help women? And, um, what do you like want them to know? Yeah. And I'm right before I answer that, I want to talk about anger for a second because women are told not to be angry all the time, all the time. If you're angry, you're just paying attention, right? Because anger is one of the most important emotions. It tells you when you think something is wrong. Yeah. And there's a lot wrong with the world right now. And so if you're not angry, I'm not sure you're paying attention. Um, so we're told not to be angry. And the reason why is because if all of us really did get angry about what's going on and in the best of cases, as so many women do, that anger is actually a motivator. It, it propels you to act. Then we would shut a lot of this down, but we are continuing, we're continuing to be told. We continue to be told that it's not attractive to be angry. It makes people uncomfortable. Um, we just need to relax, right? There's it's it's a lot of gaslighting around the experience that we're having. When you think about the way the way that women walk through the world and the way that black women walk through the world and the way that black trans women walk through the world is heavy, right? All of the biases that that person experiences as they go from point A to point B, it is so much unseen work. It's heavy. It's exhausting. It leads to burnout, as you said. And so what we have to stop doing, and like, this is the message to white women, we have to stop watching that happen to our counterparts, to the women of color inside of our organizations, and not saying anything, and not protecting them, and not standing up for them. Stop watching that, right? We have got to stop being bystanders and start being upstanders. So that's, I mean, that's really my message here is women don't need to change anything about themselves. We don't need any more like counsel on how to do things differently to shape shift to fit inside. We know what we're doing and everyone does it differently. And that's important. That's, that's, that's right. The spaces that we're in that we're not built by or for us, those are the places that need to adjust, that need to shift, that need to be more welcoming and inclusive and allow allow women to show up as themselves. So if you see this happening, say something, because it cannot be the responsibility of the people that are the most impacted by something to always be fighting for their existence. It's too fucking exhausting. Okay. How do we help women? <laughs> we show up. I mean, it's, it's part of that, part of the answer to that last question. You got to show up. That's, that's what I'm trying to do on LinkedIn is I'm trying to show up in this space and, and say, I see this happening. This is my experience. This is the experience that I know someone else is having. 
we need to address it. We need to acknowledge it because what it's never been about when it comes to the lack of women and particularly women of color in positions of power and influence, it's never been about ambition or ability or aspiration. It's always been about access. And so, right, my frustration has always been if if we're not even a part of the consideration set, how do you know if we're going to be good or not at the thing? We're not even a part of the consideration set. So that's why we came up with the fairway. It was it's built on the premise that for more than 300 years, straight white men have been doing business on the golf course. It is an entire business ecosystem. I mean, I when I think about it, it is it is stunning. It is stunning to me that someone hundreds of years ago convinced the workforce that golf was a business activity that the company should pay for and the and and individuals which by the way more mostly if not almost exclusively men were benefiting from on their company's time and dime it is incredible to me it's incredible to me that we've that we've done this and we've accepted this and more than that that we also accept that it is an exclusive place that women are not invited and if we dare to show up we're not included so people say don't have time to play golf (laughs) eight hours i mean eight hours denise when was the last time you spent eight hours with your girlfriends every week walking around I mean, it's incredible. It's it's truly, it's stunning. I mean, it's it's stunning to me. And there is an article in the Wall Street Journal that came out either the beginning of this week or end of last week. I can't remember. I had about 500 people send it to me because of course they know what we're doing with the fairway. And they were like, did you see this? And I'm like, of course I saw it. We have two white men who are researchers at Johns Hopkins. They do this research study. The headline in the Wall Street Journal is Golf is a place where business happens and women should play it. Okay. It's like, we've solved it. We figured it out. It's be- that's why women are not in positions Thank of power. They're not playing golf. It's like, oh my God, no wonder after hundreds of years, the fortune 500 only has 41 women CEOs. Got it. So it's like, no, 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 no. We're missing the forest through the trees again. This ain't about golf. It's about access. Because even if women show up to those tea times, the conversation changes because they don't think we should be there. That's the problem. My problem is not with golf as a game. My problem is not with straight white men as a, as a group of people. My problem is with systems that were not built by or for anyone but one group and exclude everyone else. So that is the issue, right? That's the issue there. And when you have people that are building generational wealth, and talking about investments and giving each other backdoor opportunities to um, jobs and projects and talking about just talking about money. And you have all of us who just are not included in that. We continue to be like left out of, of what is truly possible for our full potential. So with the fairway dinners, I wanted to create a space where women could do that same thing that's more more inherent to who we are and and how we how we connect and that is in an intimate space that is safe and it's over a meal and it's over drinks and it's it, it is okay to show up how you are that day so what we've been doing is these dinners are 20 women 
It's incredibly um, curated. I, I was so We had a fairway dinner last night in Chicago. It was our 10th dinner that we've done over the past four months. And what I say to women, because I really want them to understand like why they're there. There are some people who look at the list and they're like, oh my God, I don't belong here. And I'm like, no, we're not playing that game. It's like every woman that accepts an invite to the fairway changes the next woman I invite because there is a chemistry to the room that is important. Because what I've always been frustrated with, with networking is you'll go to a place that's like, this is the women in tech conference. And you're like, oh my God, this is going to, this is going to solve it for me. Like I got, like, this is great. There's a thousand women in the room and they're like, have a great time. Do you see a thousand men playing golf? No, it's a foursome, right? You can't, you can't get to anything meaningful at that level that is like everything is spread thin and, and the requirement is the onus is on you as an individual to like figure it all out. So you spend 20 minutes talking to someone who's great, but they're never going to be able to help you in your career. And across the room was the person that you didn't speak to that could have changed your life. Like I wanted to take the work out of the networking piece and make it so that if you're in this room, everyone there is there because you're there. So what we've done over those four months, completely self-funded, bootstrapped, is for those 200 women at those five, at, at those 10 dinners in five markets, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, LA, and DC, we have created more than 4,000 connections for them. And we have increased their wealth by $5.2 million. That is, it's just the beginning, right? And so like, I think it's what's really important. And I shared this with the room last night and I'll share it here. At my New York dinner, we had an amazing woman who is a jewelry designer. And the... Over the next month, the women of the fairway of that dinner spent $20,000 with her. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about increasing each other's wealth. And so men have been doing this with each other forever. We've got to start doing it more intentionally with each other. I love it. Taking the work out of networking, the intimacy, the curating. I love it. And this gets back to a word I don't think I've brought up yet, but that you are also described as. We've talked about the bold, innovative, and all that, um, courageous, but pragmatic. Mm, yes. Because a lot of companies do a lot of BS DEI work. So they look good. There's nothing pragmatic about it. So just tell us more about how you offer, we, you've talked about the fairway and how that is a very pragmatic. It's producing, you know, more than $5 million for, for the uh, participants. What do you do in companies with your advising, whether it was the White House or companies, C-level leaders, that distinguishes you from what they're doing that's not pragmatic? Can you give us some examples? Yeah. I mean, I think pragmatism for some reason has gotten like a bad rap as being less sexy. Really? Than... I love it. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. But I, what I mean by that is like, people want to talk incredibly aspirationally and marketing speak has made things really fluffy. And like, there's a, there's a performative nature to DEI that unfortunately has, has sort of taken hold that doesn't have that pragmatism grounded in it because no one's holding them accountable. Pragmatism comes in when you are asked to be held accountable because you actually have to show progress. If you say like, we're going to, we want to increase the number of women in our agency by 20%. We're going to do that. And you're uh, cool. How are you going to do it? When are you going to check to see if it's working? What are you going to do if it's not working? 
Like those are the things, those are the questions that are uncomfortable. And, and I think the other thing about DEI, um, you know, I, I've been a, a comms person my whole life, traditional comms, the way that it works, and this is the way that it, you know, really worked years ago, you would do something, you do a campaign, you would like get all of the results and then you would tell the story. So you would say, this is all wrapped up and done. Here's what we did. We're so proud. This is what we achieved. Have a wonderful day. Inclusive communications, which is what diversity, equity, and inclusion, and access are all surrounded in, is way messier. And it's not wrapped up in a bow and it doesn't end. And so it's it's actually a completely different approach where you have to talk to people all the time. You have to tell them what you're doing well and what you're not doing well at. You have to be open to feedback. Like the world has changed. Like the expectations of consumers have changed. The expectations of all of your stakeholders, your employees, it's all changed. And so you need to um, be comfortable with the unfinishedness of it and the messiness. And and like people always say like, hey, I was doing something and then I felt uncomfortable. And so I backed away from it. It's like, no, 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 no. The more uncomfortable you're feeling, the more you need to go towards it and through it. That is change. Change is discomfort and and it's it's you know two things that are when you think about equilibrium it's two opposing forces pushing together and trying to land somewhere in an equitable middle there's no there's no like direct path to that and every company has a different set of values and products or services and so it you have to be really authentic to yourself and so when i've worked with fortune 500 fortune 100 fortune 1 companies to do this it's like don't be so grandiose that you can't even start. Pick a thing that you can actually measure that you can achieve and then start to build on that. And that is how true change begins to happen. And then what I will always advise clients on is if you want someone to pay attention to something and prioritize it, tie it to their compensation. No one pays attention to something like they do when their bonus can be impacted by the lack of their ability to deliver those results. And so that that to me is that's where the rubber meets the road, right? This is this is we have those same accountability metrics for what we call business decisions, sales, you know, revenue, um increase in in staffing, all of those things. You have a target, you meet it or you don't, and you are held accountable for it. For some reason, we have treated DEI like an extracurricular that you can opt in or out of based on how you're feeling, when really it, it shouldn't be its own sort of department. It should be infused throughout the entire organization. It, it's the way you work. It's not a thing you do. It's the way you work. And so you actually should have DEI practitioners inside of every facet of your business it, there should be DEI pr practitioners who are on your sales team, who are on your marketing team, who are like on your biz dev team. I don't believe that we have gotten far enough with siloing these individuals and not giving them the resources, the power, the influence they deserve to actually see true change. Yes. And then they become figureheads, you know, um, it just, and everything you've just said points to um, requiring people to allow messiness. 
and nobody wants to be nobody wants to be messy in the corporate world, right? They're all comparing themselves to everybody else. We need perfectionism. And that's what you were describing with the comms issues, the backwards comms issues. Well, we can't tell the public bad things, so we just got to be perfect. And I totally agree. If you don't connect it to the bonus, because sales is messy, they'll figure Mm -hmm. out anything. They'll try anything to get the sales up and then see what works, right? But when it comes to culture, when it comes to the stuff that doesn't affect the bottom line, so so to speak, which it really does, there is an unwillingness to be messy. There's an unwillingness to allow for failure. Yeah. And that is, if you can't, if you don't fail, you cannot innovate. No change can come from a process that does not allow for failure. And so that has been such, that's been such a problem with most of these efforts is you have when you think about you know, so many of the DEI leaders inside of organizations, they're people of color, they're women of color, they're black women. They are they are in between a rock and a hard place because they have a unwinnable um, expectation to achieve something that does not have the power, resources, or influence necessary to get it done. And they can't try anything new because if they fail, then the message is this is why we didn't do this before. So, you know, th- this is a this is a gendered thing as well. It's not just about DEI work. Like women, the expectation we have of women is so different than men with respect to failure as a leader. I mean, don't even get me started on WeWork and Adam Newman and that he could that he could lose billions of dollars and come back like a year later and be reinvested in by with hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, it's just, it is stunning to me. It's stunning to me because no woman has ever been allowed to do that. No woman has been allowed to fail that big. Like well, the fact that he even got funded in the first place. That he got funded in the first place. I'm not a business strategist, but that idea was just not worth. Like it it didn't make it, it didn't make sense, business sense. Well, and I just, you know, I think it's 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 the reality that we know about just the difference between VC funding for for women versus men, right? VC, unbelievably during the pandemic, VC funding for women went down, which it's like, can we go less than 2.9%? I guess we can. We can keep going. And then when you look at Black women, the number rounds to zero. It's like 0.0003. So, so what that tells us is that we don't believe that women's ideas are worth money. We don't believe that women's ideas are worth investing in. When we look at the Fortune 500 and we only have 41 female CEOs, and this is the highest number we have ever been at in in the history of mankind, womankind, humankind, the message is we don't believe that women can lead. So those are the messages that were being sent all the time. And they're not true. Like, again, when you look at those 41 women, the study showed that those the the companies that are led by women outperformed the companies led by men in the fortune 500 S&P 500 for 10 years in a row that is not a fluke that is not a coincidence that is statistics those are statistics those are facts what for some reason when we talk about gender and race we like there is this part of of society that re re-engineers the statistic to not take it at face value, but to make an excuse and say that it's actually some other reason that those things were happening. 
that, you know, there's a political reason for that. There's a, there's another component. No, no, no. This is just, this is a fact. So if we know that that's happening, what is holding us back from putting more women in positions of power and influence? It's, it's bias. It's, it's totally biased, right? It's misogyny. It's, it's racism and, you know, misogynoir, which is, again, it's, that's a double, a double whammy that black women get, which is the discrimination for being a woman and for being black. So my, my mission, my, what I am here to do, what I am going to continue to do and what I hope I'll be able to talk about at some point soon is sort of the next piece of, of my work. I am, my mission is to get more women into positions of power and influence. I want them leading every single, every single fortune 500 company. I want them in all of the senior roles that are public, private, government, nonprofit. Let's see, you know, with women, they always want proof with men. It's about potential. Right. I think, I think you would be good at this. Let's give it a whirl. Right. With women, they're like, you think you'd be good at this? Have you done this before? Well, of course not. Cause no one will let me do it. So it's or you've only done it for five years. I've only done it for five years, right? It's like, and again, what we know about women and what we know about women and black women in particular is they are overeducated yeah. in order to be considered. And then they are told you are overqualified for this job. So they cannot win, right? right. Women just can't win. It's why so many women have left the workforce. We, we're seeing women leave the workforce in higher numbers than we have ever seen in our entire history with nowhere to go. They are leaving the workforce with nowhere to go because they're done. And so we're going to continue to see this transformation of women and this, the, the continued um, growth of founders and small businesses, because they are sick of trying to work inside of a system that wasn't built by or for them. Right. I'm constantly advising women who are considering getting a master's or getting a PhD. I'm like, can you just wait? Like, like, just wait. Just wait. Don't talk to me. Let, let's oh, fix don't this. Take, don't take that decide. Right? Don't take that on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, exactly. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not going to pay off. Um, mm -hmm. When I became a mom and I know you're a mom, I literally had an old boss reach out to me and she says, well, I want to hire you back. Please come back because now that you're a mom, you're going to be even more stellar. So all the moms out there, I mean, the first time I packed my daughter for a trip, I'm like, there's no way a man would have done this. Mm -hmm. We would have gotten to wherever we were in the world <laughs> And not had a binky, not had a blankie, not had diapers, not had whatever. Women have to be so strategic all the time. Yes. In order to make things work. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we don't put them into positions of power is just ridiculous. And maybe that's why we don't do it because the men know, oh God, if we really put them into power, shit, what's going to happen to us? It's a scarcity mindset. It's what's going to happen to us when in reality, like maybe you won't be in charge of everything, but your life will be better, right? The choices will be better. Like when women have more money, everybody wins. They do a better job of investing, of managing money, of pouring that money back into their communities, of taking care of people's well, I mean, health and well-being. And so, so yeah, you're right. Like it's, but you know what? It's time for the pendulum to swing because we've been sitting with one group of people running everything and it ain't going well, right? It's not going well. So it's time for a sea change. We're going to continue to see it. And you're completely right that like mothers are just the most unbelievable humans on the planet because of 
what we, I mean, we become different people. There is, there is research that shows that your brain actually changes when you become a mother. And there's just, there are things that you're capable of doing that you never believed were going to be possible. So to the point of like, if we put certain people in charge of the packing of bags and that kind of stuff, like we're going to be in trouble because they don't know what they're doing. Women's unpaid labor is worth $10.9 trillion every year. So we have to start letting shit fall through the cracks because yeah. that's, the, that's the reality is like what we keep doing is we keep going, you know what? I'll just do it. Cause I know how to do it. Well then guess what? You're going to keep doing it forever. And so I have two boys, seven and four. And my husband is like an absolute equitable partner. They see him do everything that they see me do. They need to know that. They need to know how to do those things. That is how we're going to change this. I'm not quite sure what to do with the men who are in their seventies. You know, like they, it's going to be up to them if they want to make some changes. But our real opportunity is with the next generation that we're bringing up that is going to see their role and responsibility in all of these things that have been the unpaid labor of women for centuries. So it's, you know, it's what Eve Rodsky writes about in Fair Play. She talks about the fact that we view women's time like sand. It's infinite. And we view men's time like diamonds, right? And we, if we don't stop doing everything and letting things fall through the cracks, that unpaid labor is just going to keep the world running. It's yeah. going to keep the world running. So, you know, I remember, you know, probably two years into becoming a mother as a person that always was on top of things, I just started to let shit go in my house at work and to, to communicate, there's nothing wrong with me. You don't get to tell me I'm opting out of something. I didn't opt into this. Right. This was not a choice. I never baked a brownie, never baked a cookie. I'm so proud of being the mom who did the minimum effective dose. And this is what I teach women. <laughs> you need to, instead of doing the maximum, instead of filling all the holes and like you said, like all the cracks, yeah. you need to do the minimum and they will respect you more. I can't tell you how many moms were like, damn, I wish I would have just bought something from the store. I'm like, like who has time? Who has time? Who the has who time? time? And also, but also like, if someone's going to judge you for that, that is about them. It's not about you. Right. So like, oh, again, yeah. it, it's about this, this, like we tie so much of our worth to our service, to other people and our performance and how we show up. And like a lot of that is just conditioning. And so we need to just communicate, you know, this is what I was capable of doing. This is yeah. what was, possible. this is what that's was why possible. I wasn't judged. I don't think. And that is why I had no shame. Yeah. Like, this is what I'm, this is my capacity right now. And so I'm doing the best I can given my capacity. And I tell that to my clients all the time. I don't care if you did like C minus work right there. Um, it was brilliant. Mm -hmm. And now we just need to figure out how to do C minus work. That's brilliant. When you do have capacity, Yeah. you know, so you can feel great and right. not overperform. Right. And that's the most, like, I, I get tears when, when a client comes to me and says, um, you know, I was working 90 weeks, two weeks ago, I'm working for or 90 hours. I'm working 40 hours. Got a text from a woman last night. She was in the top 10 list of DEI practitioners nationwide. I don't know how she got nominated or whatever, because, and your, your 5 million reminded me, she yeah. reallocated so far $5 million to black employees. Incredible. And she was working 90 hours and she goes, I just got to figure out how to work a hundred. 
because mm-hmm. they asked me to take on one more thing. Yep. So now she's working 45, spending every night at home with her kids, with her husband. And she sent me a text, three text photos last night. She was featured in Essence. And I'm just like, you're going to make me cry. I'm like, look at, right? I told my, I showed my, my child. I'm like, right. look at what, what she did. Right. And, and again, it's like, look what you did when you reclaimed your time. Yeah. And you're right? pride, you know, because so, yes. Yeah. So yeah. do less, receive more, feel more capacity and then enjoy life with it. And you're, you, when you were talking about that scenario, all the unpaid labor and everything, it reminded me of the, and mothers, it reminded me of the movie everywhere, all at once, everything, everything, all everywhere, all at once, which reminded me that you are the founder of the hype woman movement. So it's really fun. And, um, for people who haven't heard of it, can you just tell us about it? Um, yeah. The really quick story is that, um, During the Golden Globes, Michelle Yeoh won Best Actress for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and her co-star, Jamie Lee Curtis, um, was overjoyed for her, and a photo started to circulate of this moment of her with her arms up, just screaming in excitement. And I saw this photo, and I thought to myself, God, we don't see this enough. Women supporting other women as if it was their own, like, success. And I, as I do, when I just, something is sort of in my head and I need to process, I wrote a post on LinkedIn and I said, ladies, this is, this is your vibe for 2023 unabashed hype woman. Like, this is what we're going to do. We are going to support each other. We are not going to see other women as threats. We are going to decondition from that. We're going to unlearn what we've been taught that another woman's success detracts from ours, that her light dims yours, right? These are These are all things we've been told because they wanted us to stay small and they wanted us to also focus on fighting each other so that we were distracted from the real task at hand, which is the dismantling of a white supremacist patriarchy. Yeah. They wanted only one woman at the table. Correct. And if you hype everybody, then what what do we do with all the other qualified women at the table? Oh my God, we might, we, there might be five of us. What are we going to do? Right. They're going to have to put more chairs there. I mean, God forbid. So, so I wrote this post, it went viral on LinkedIn and, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's friend saw it and sent it to her because she thought that Jamie would appreciate it. And Jamie posted it on Instagram and then it went everywhere on Instagram. And, and so within probably 48 hours, it was picked up by about 15 global publications, um, the Today Show, Huffington Post, uh, Guardian, lots of lots of different places. And Jamie and I started to communicate. And she said, I love what you're doing. I just thank you for writing this. This was this was really just a very honest, authentic moment that I didn't know was going to touch people. And what I said to her was, this moment though, this visual. It is healing for women generationally because we have been told to, to view one another as threats. And so to think that we could have the permission to make a total shift and start to instead have deep joy when someone else is successful, there's just so much freedom that can come from that. So much freedom that can come from that. 
And so my encouragement was, I want you all to hype women. I want women to hype women and I want others to hype women. I want, when you see another woman's success on LinkedIn and it's like, she won, she was featured in Essence, right? She won an award. If your first thought is, is she really that good? Does she deserve that? What, why didn't, what about me? Why didn't I get that? If those are your first thoughts, I want you to take the shame and the blame away from it because you have been conditioned to think that. Your opportunity, if you want to, to change and you want to grow, is to acknowledge that conditioning and then to decide to make a different choice. And so you can have that feeling and it's going to take a while to get that out of your system. So when you have it, you say, nope, not today. Repost. I'm going to hype her. I'm going to share this. I'm excited. And what you're going to feel is, is abundance versus scarcity. And so that is what happened. I made a shirt. It went everywhere. Um, we now have, I bought, I bought hypewomen.com. And so we have Hype Women brand partners on hypewomen.com. I've always had a desire and a wish to have an online marketplace that just um, directed people to other women-owned businesses. And so, you know, we have um, Farm Girl Flowers, um, women-owned Christina Stemple. She's been around for 12 years and it's the first direct-to-consumer online flower marketplace. We have uh, the McBride Sisters, first and largest Black women-owned winery in the U.S. They've been around for 17 years, incredible women, all kinds of, of products and services that, that women are putting out into the world. We need to spend money with them. And so Hype Women continues to be a movement. Uh, we're launching our podcast in July. And Jamie Lee Curtis is our first guest. Yes. Woo! Right. And we'll talk about kind of what this has been like and what has happened. And, um, and, you know, Soledad O'Brien will be on there among other really incredible women. So, so uh, what we decided was like, yes, this was a moment, but we, we, we collectively turned it into a movement and it continues to be a, a hashtag that is used. I, I post probably 15 to 20 Hype women posts um, on LinkedIn every day when I see a woman sharing her own success or the success of another woman, I amplify it to my network. I'm so excited for you. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but what you just described is that actually has scientific backing to it. Mm. So this is the emotional funnel um, mm. as defined by David Hawkins. And um, women have been taught to live in shame. And Shame is really convenient from a society standpoint because it makes women do free work. It makes women overprove themselves mm -hmm. and it creates inflammation and pain and anxiety and all Ooh. the, all the shit that comes with it. I'm like, why are you just describing my personhood? That is, that is all of the things. Right. Yeah. And so that's where they, and they try and fake it, you know, mm -hmm. but it's all coming from a place of unworthiness. That is just a fucked up story that they right. inherited growing up. So when you said, forgive yourself, notice that you did that with that other woman, forgive yourself. Okay. So then you go up to fear like, oh shit, I'm not good enough of, of her. It still sucks. Fear is a bad place to live. And, but you can want, you know what? No, no, I want to celebrate her. Mm -hmm. And you make a decision. That's what you, you talked about. You make a decision. And then when you do that, mm -hmm. you shift all, you went to joy. Joy mm -hmm. is all fuck up here. Yeah, it is. So you can do within split seconds, if you know how to do this, yes. make the pauses and be mindful. You can go from shame and you're right. Anger is more powerful. You mm -hmm. can be like, no, fuck 
that. They, they can't tell me not to love that woman. Like they like, no, 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 no. You know? Yeah. And, and Jamie just like went to joy immediately. Right. Cause she's just who she is. Um, and, but that is what we have to do is we have to notice the story, notice the feeling, be like, that's not based in any reality. No. It's no. planted by these ideas that my parents were well-intentioned to try to keep me safe, you know, play small, uh, yep. don't overstep yourself, you know, don't try and shine too high, too bright, well, all that. But then the stuff we tell ourselves like, oh, I can't, you know, I'm getting in competition with her. So there you go. You're a scientist as well. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. You know what? What's up now, AP physics teacher <laughs> that gave me a shitty grade in high school? You know, I, 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 I will take that. I will take that title. All right. So anything else before I ask you some round robin questions? Um, any, anything else you want to make sure people know? And we're going to put in the notes how they can reach you and, and find your, your stuff and all that good stuff. Yeah, no, I'm ready for the round robin. All right. When you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? An architect. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, I, which is funny because like when I look at what I'm doing and what I've done, I am in many ways creating new systems. And so it's, it's like metaphorically architecture of, of reimagining a way um, but it came from, and I think this is why it's just so important things that, you, that are said to you when you're young by people that you trust and care about, they are flashbulb moments that you take with you for the rest of your life. And so I remember exactly where I was. My mom was in the coast guard. She was, um, uh, she retired as a captain after 25 years I moved every two to four years, my entire life. When we were living in Hawaii, the first time we were at the airport and I was like, I made a comment about a building saying, I feel like there's some Asian influence in that structure. And my mom was like, you're going to be an architect. And she bought me a Frank R Lloyd Wright book. And so like for many years, I was like, this is my destiny. Right. So, you know, and then I went on to want to be a lot of other things, including wanting to be a lawyer. Like that's what I really thought I was going to be. But, you know, I think that, um, as parents, we have to be really careful and intentional and thoughtful about what we say to our kids because they can carry it with them for the rest of their lives in good and bad ways. Oh, yeah. And so I really try and I don't always do do well and I, I screw up a lot. Um, I really try to pause and sort of recognize what's going on for me before I respond to what's going on for them. And I also apologize 50 times a day. Every time I mess up, I say, I'm sorry. And I don't, I don't, it's not a conditional apology that says, I'm sorry, I yelled, but you blah, blah, blah. It's just a validation of the negative experience they had and an apology on my behalf because I'm the adult and I should do better. That's the kind of apology I like. Okay. If you, there's two more, if you could appoint anyone president of the United States today, who would you appoint? Oh, baby. Um, I, I kind of have two answers because in a perfect world, what if we said in a perfect world where that person would not be assassinated because of who they are and like scrutinized? I mean, I, yeah. I would like, 
I, I would like it to be Alexis Miguel, who is the CEO and president of Planned Parenthood. Um, I, I would like her to be the president. I think that, I think if, if we have someone that understands the, the, the fundamental, um, like humanity that comes with giving women back our right to bodily autonomy, everything will, everything will come from that. And so for a woman who is leading that charge and who is at the forefront of the, one of the most terrifying times to be a woman in America, I'd like to, I'd like to have her taken us into the next four years. Beautiful. Yeah. What is your go-to song that you know, if you're in a crappy mood, it is going to lift you out of that red zone of the cone and put you way up into joy or at least badassery umbrella by rihanna um so when my first son was born and i would go in to change him in his room and we had like a little alexa there every single time i walked in i would say alexa play rihanna play umbrella by rihanna from spotify and then i would change his diaper so i did it i did it like 20 times a day and it was like pavlov's bell it was just kind of like Diaper change, Rihanna. And so Will, that is the song he heard the most of, like, for the first you know, year or two of his life. And I have this, I literally have a video of him when he still can't talk quite well. And he's like, he's like, umbrella, umbrella. And he's asking for umbrella to play. And it comes on and he starts dancing. And um, like, so there's, there's a sentimental like part for that. I remember I remember driving with my sister when I went to pick her up um, when she was in college and in, in between years, she would work at this amazing camp for young women and girls in Vermont. And I went to pick her up to drive her back at the end of the summer. And it's like, we were blasting umbrella and it was just like through the like rolling um, hills of Vermont with all these trees. So I have these, like, I have these really visual moments of that song and who Rihanna is in this world she is one of the most powerful women in her own right and um now has come into motherhood and is showing us her, her power tenfold through that um and the words what that song means um about supporting people and showing up for people which was really sort of the first question you asked is you know how how do we support women we show up we show up. I can see her as president too. Yeah, I'm in, I'm totally in for it. And it's like, yes, okay. And also like, we're all going to be wearing Fenty, like Savage by Fenty. Like we're doing all of it. Like we're wearing her makeup, we're wearing her clothing, we're singing her songs. Yes, let's go. Like, please put black, put black women in charge and we'll be sorted. Pay them, pay them, pay them. Put them in She's being paid. She is being paid. And is it a coincidence that your company is Ella, Ella, Ella? Ella? <laughs> so guess what? That is a coincidence. Like, no joke, after I launched and we were listening to Umbrella in our house, my son Will was like, oh my God, Ella. It's like, Ella, Ella. I was like, okay. Well, that was just probably in my subconscious. Um, it, I mean, the reason that I named the company the company is because I, I, I'm focused on, obsessed with, um, committed to women and, and Ella means woman, female, feminine. 
but yes, that is that was a coincidence that was that was very intentional by the universe. The universe had its had its plan, and it came to fruition. All right. Well, if I had copyright, um, I would play this song at the end as we're trailing out. <laughs> But I, I get in trouble when I when I do things like that. So I'm not I'm not going to do that. But everybody can go and listen to whatever their song is. So um, thank you, Erin, for being with us and for sharing your passion and for doing what you do in the world. And um, I look forward to connecting again. And I'm excited to share this with the world. Thank you, Denise. I, I knew this was going to be a really powerful conversation, but it exceeded my expectations. And I hope that it fills women up and reminds them of who the hell they are. So grateful to you for creating this space. Amen. Let's remind them. Thanks for listening to Work-Life Brilliance. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give us is to share this podcast with a friend. And we greatly appreciate your favorable review to let us know we're helping you become a more brilliant version of yourself by listening in.